0: Well, good morning. You may be seated. Uh, My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Uh, Psalm 96.1 tells us, right out of the gate, the very first uh, verse in Psalm 96, it says, Sing to the Lord a new song. Right? And I love that song that we just sang. Abide. I love that song. It's actually a newer song, right? Like it's not a, a, an old hymn that's been around for a really long time. It's a newer song. And I love learning new songs to worship the Lord together with. Like I love when we kind of gather together and we, we sing these old truths in a new way and kind of even it, it, there's something about it that kind of appeals to our even modern Sensibilities. Like there's something about the way the song is sung, and it's kind of like, yeah, this feels good. But there's also something really, really powerful about singing those old songs, too. Amen? Like there's something about the song that we sang before that one. Tis so sweet. You don't get that one a lot, especially in a lot of kind of like the, the hip churches, right? And I and I get it, like I mean, I hey, look, we're hip. Right? I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. But but there's something about the reality of a song that's 130 years old and has been sung by generations and generations of believers belted out over time. Like, and it, that thing has aged and matured into something timeless and powerful. Like it's one of those songs that's been sort of belted out again by millions of believers over the years. So when we sing a song like Tis So Sweet, like it's not because we're old fashioned, right? It's not because using Shakespearean terms like vow and, and tis, right? It doesn't make you more holy when you do that. Right? But there's something powerful about joining with a multitude of ancient voices around the spiritual throne room of God in a chorus that kind of transcends time and space, even. Like there's a way, it's a way of, of tapping into our heavenly heritage as God's people, and it goes way beyond one local church. It reminds us that we're a part of something way bigger. It reminds us that, that this song, it's, just like, it's about sweetly trusting in Jesus together and then passing that legacy down to countless others in the future who will sing this song. Maybe your children and children's children, I pray that they sing this song. Right? Like belting out Jesus Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him over and over, or over and over, right? Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Like, it doesn't matter what century you're born in. Like, if you know Jesus, those lyrics, they're powerful. And if you don't know him, and they're not that powerful to you, then I pray you wouldn't leave here this morning until they are. You see, this song is about being firmly established in Jesus. It was actually written by a woman named Louisa Stead, who moved to England in, or from, moved from England, excuse me, from England to America in 1871. And soon after, she was married and had a daughter named Lily. And when Lily was about four years old, Louisa and her husband, uh, they went for a picnic along the Rhode Island Sound, and while they're relaxing and enjoying the day and kind of just eating and hanging out with their family, their, their little new small family, um, her husband spotted a boy who was drowning in the sound. And so he immediately rushes in to save the boy, and in his panic, though, he pulled her husband down, and he drowned, both of them drowned, right in front of Lily and Louisa. So here she is, It's in the late 1880s, or sorry, in the late 1800s, right? She's a world away from her original home, and now she's living in deep grief with a four-year-old that she needs to provide for as a single parent in the late 1800s. And so here she is in this context, and yet this is the context in which she wrote the lyrics for "'Tis So Sweet." back in 1882. Like, it's no wonder she calls upon the name of Jesus in this song no more than 20, or sorry, no less than 25 times. She calls upon the name. You can feel this joyful dependence that she's learned to trust and depend on Jesus, right? Like, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him, how I've proved Him over and over. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust Him more. because, is so sweet to trust in jesus that's a powerful lesson just to take him at his word just to rest upon his promise just to know say no just to know thus saith the lord which is a phrase that's used in the Old Testament 413 times. You see, it's a call to faith that both Louisa and her daughter, Lily, who, if you don't know, it's, it's crazy that most people, I didn't even really know about this story. Which, I'm like, how did I not know this? Both Louisa and her daughter, Lily, had come to experience this type of trust in him and his promises and it had become like honey on their lips and they had both actually became so deeply rooted and firmly established in Christ that they would eventually move to Africa as missionaries to share the hope that they had in Christ with those that didn't. That's a serious firm foundation. And the power of their testimony though is not about overcoming tragedy. That's how our culture sees it. Man, they really sucked it up. They're strong women, Right? But that's not what this story is about. It's not about overcoming tragedy. It's about experiencing a triumph that was already there for them, and they just simply received it. That's what their story is about. Louisa's story is about how she, or, or sorry, it's not about how she grit her teeth and powered through her grief despite all the odds. Like hers is a story of grace. Hers is the story of faith and the sweetness of trusting in a good Savior and King. Like, Louisa is not the hero of her story. Jesus is. And that's the point. That's the point of a song. "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, not my ability to make it all happen. That's just a recipe for anxious disaster. Right?" It's just so sweet to trust in Jesus, just from sin and self to cease, just from Jesus simply taking life and rest and joy and peace, and that's available to all of us, no matter what our circumstances are. And yet you can also feel him smiling on our life, like it's not about her, but you you sense the joy on Christ's face. When you think about this song and you think about her life, you're just feeling, just delighting in her every syllable here as she's resting and trusting and receiving this joy and this peace that comes straight from the source of life itself. Like there's a deep strength and joy in this. And I, I, I pray, my prayer for you is that we'd all get swept up into it this morning as we continue through the book of Colossians. And we're going to be moving through in this book, uh, or this, our series through Colossians, and a series called uh, Firmly Established. So Colossians is an ancient letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to an ancient church in Colossae, and he is, uh, it, while he writes this, he's actually imprisoned in Rome. And so years before this, Paul was encountered by the risen Christ, and he was commissioned to then preach this gospel and make disciples who make disciples and plant churches that plant churches all over the known world. And so as he went all in on this commission, he travels around the Roman world three times. And he's making disciples, and he's planting churches, and he's also often doing it in really hostile areas. And so by the time he writes this letter, he's been imprisoned, and he's likely facing the death penalty under Roman law. That's the context in which he's writing this letter. But while he's there in Rome, in prison, he and his friend Timothy receive a visitor named Epaphras who tells him about this church that he's planted in Colossae. And Paul had never been to Colossae. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Paul had actually never been to this city uh, in in, um, what was then Asia Minor, what is now today uh, Turkey. Um, But Paul had actually never been to Colossae, but he did spend two years preaching the gospel and making disciples uh, in Ephesus, which was about 123 miles to the east of Colossae. And so Epaphras, this visitor that's come to him and his friend Timothy, um, he had likely been trained up and commissioned. He'd been trained up in Ephesus and then commissioned back to his hometown of Colossae, where he then planted this now thriving church. And so he's bringing this report, this good news to Paul and Timothy. And he's telling them, he's telling them about uh, what God is doing in the Colossians. And so Paul and Timothy then respond by writing this letter to a people that they've never met in a city that they've never actually even been to. But their love and excitement for the Colossians is clear. Like we read in the first part of chapter one how thankful they were to, uh, to God for the Colossians and how they had unceasingly been praying for them ever since they heard about them, All right? And then Paul then begins to just remind them of who Jesus is, in verse 15 through 20, this is what uh, we looked at last week, and Pastor Dave crushed this. Amen? You guys see it? We're here for that. Good job, Dave. Um, and it, 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 he talked about, in verse 15 through 20, Just he just goes off about the glory and supremacy and the preeminence of Jesus in all things, right? And how... In Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It's almost like Paul wants to just make sure if there's any doubt in your mind about who Jesus actually is, because there would have been some rumors saying, you know, he's not really God, right? Like any inkling of that, Paul's just like, I'm going to make sure we're going to clear it up for you right here, right? He's, he's, he then makes this sort of general statement about the reconciling of all creation here in verse 20 and that's kind of how he ends it that Christ in Christ the fullness of God is pleased to dwell and he's reconciling creation that's what he's doing and that's what he's calling but then here in verse 21 through 23 which is where we're going to be this morning Paul takes this overarching offer and he makes it extremely personal and pretty confrontational but like he makes it clear that it's not just a general offer to everyone, that not everyone will receive this because there is a condition. Jesus didn't die on the cross. Like, oftentimes I'll have conversations with people about the gospel, and one of the biggest misconceptions, especially in our society, is that Jesus died for everyone, and therefore, because Jesus died on the cross, everyone will be saved. It's not true. It's not true at all. There is a condition. And we're going to talk about that this morning. There is one condition. And here in verse 21 through 23, he he brings this condition out and he makes it clear. But he doesn't let them simply associate with this general narrative of Christianity either. Okay? Paul confronts them with their personal role and their personal relationship in this with Jesus, which is what it's about. He doesn't allow them to just kind of check out and make it about something that happened in another city or in another time. He doesn't allow them to keep Jesus and this story of redemption at a distance or general. He makes it very personal. He draws them in and he forces them to identify in a very personal way with what Jesus has done for them in the past and who he is for them now in the present and what he's promised specifically for them in their future. But it all hangs on this glorious necessity for them to be firmly established In the faith and hope of the gospel, which is the title of the sermon this morning. So we're going to hone in on Colossians 1, 21 through 23, and the title of the sermon this morning is firmly established, In the Hope of the Gospel. So we only have three verses this morning, but I, I, I really think if you allow the Holy Spirit to speak through these three verses, I believe that they will transform your life forever. No matter where you're at. Even if you're already a Christian, this will draw you deeper into the powerful truths of the gospel. And so let's read through uh, these three verses and then drop back and break them down. So Paul's going to give us two categories and one condition. Two categories and one condition. And so that's also going to act as sort of the roadmap or the structure for the rest of our time this morning. So, two categories and one condition. Turn with me to Colossians 1, verse 21 through 23. Let's just read through it. Uh, together, right out of the gate here. Colossians 1, verse 21. Here we go. And you who were once, uh, or, or excuse me, and you who once were alienated alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. All right? So we got two categories and one condition. So the first category is alienated and hostile. And the second category is reconciled to be presented holy. And every human in all creation falls into one of these two categories. But there's no in-between here. You're either alienated and hostile or reconciled to be presented holy. There's no in-between. But as we're going to see, for those who are alienated and hostile to God, they may, that may actually describe your past. It may even describe your present right now. But the point that I want you to see is that it doesn't have to describe your future. Which is what, uh, or where that beautiful condition comes in. And that condition is continuing in the faith, maybe even receiving by faith, the hope of the gospel, and then continuing in it. We're going to talk about this morning. So two categories and a condition. And here's what I want you to get this morning. You get nothing else. Here's what I want you to get. "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." Just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. I spent a lot of time coming up with that one. (laughs) Just should write a song about it or something. Okay, so, before we break this down, you might be thinking, all right, sounds a little narrow-minded, right? Like, not everybody in the world is not a Christian, is hostile and evil, Right? Like, people are complicated. That's, I, that's pretty big overgeneralization, don't you think? Like, like, I've met some Christians who've been pretty hostile, and they've done some messed up stuff. Right? So does that mean that they aren't really Christians? But then wouldn't that mean, then, that Christians have to be morally perfect? Or else they're alienated? Like, how can you have these two categories and only fall into one or the other? Is that what this is saying? Like, how can everybody fall into only one or the other of these two categories, right? It's a great question. Let's look at the first category. Verse 21, alienated and hostile, all right? Also, spoiler alert, no, this is not saying that in order to be a Christian, you must be morally perfect at all times, okay? Heads up. That's not what this is saying. So what is it saying? Let's look at it. Verse 21. It says, and you, look at somebody and say, he's talking to you. Come on, wake up. Look at, come, this is going to, I'm not just preaching a lecture here or doing a lecture. This is got to be engaging. I'm preaching a sermon. That's, there's some give and take here. So look at somebody and say, he's talking to you. There we go. <laughs> So it says, and you, you, he's talking to you, he's talking to me, right? And you, he's talking to the Colossians, you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Were you once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds? Maybe you are right now. So again, he's making this personal, though. You, he's writing to these Colossians whom he's never met, and he's making a pretty sweeping assumption about their past here. Right? He's never even been there. He says, you were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. So what does that mean? Like, I think we tend to subconsciously fill in the blanks here, right? Like, we tend to think about, like, the most, when we think hostile in mind and doing evil deeds because they're alienated. Like, when you think of evil deeds stemming from an alienated and hostile people, think about what comes to mind. We tend to fill in these blanks with the most grotesque aspects about our society. Like we think sexual immorality, we think idolatry, we think demon worship, maybe murder, hatred of God, gossip, slander, right? Maybe a society that's filled with bitterness and cruelty and constant complaining and gossip and planning evil, right? And yes, I did say gossip twice there, right? Because uh, contrary to popular belief, um, slander is one of the things that God hates, Right? You hear me? I'm not the pastor that's like, you guys, stop doing this. I actually am very thankful for our church that this does not run rampant in. (laughs) Okay? Praise God for that. Um, But I want you to see that oftentimes these are the things, the categories, that when we think about an entire society that's alienated from God and hostile in mind, these are the kinds of things that come to mind. Right? So sometimes I think about this, and I, 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 I like when I think about a society alienated and hostile, you know, I think about Scar and the hyenas from The Lion King. You remember this? Remember them? Right. Like at the beginning of the movie, in, in, in The Lion King, um, at the beginning of the movie, the great king, Mufasa, he takes his son Simba up on the rock, and they're overlooking the kingdom, and he tells them that everything the light touches is our kingdom. Right? You remember this? Anybody seen it? And Simba's like, everything the light touches? And Mephasa says, everything. But then Simba says, what about that shadowy place? And Mephasa says, that's beyond our borders. You must never go there. And of course Simba thinks his dad's holding out on him. And that he's, he's the one alienated from the shadowy place. But the truth is Simba just hasn't learned to trust his father because the shadowy place is where those alienated from the kingdom of light were forced to remain, right? That's where all the hyenas and stuff were. Huh. That's where the wicked people were. That's where the, the pe- those alienated and hostile towards the king and his kingdom, and those plotting evil deeds, uh, that's where they were. Also, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the movie, they do end up killing the king and taking over his kingdom for a time. So the young Simba is then forced to sojourn in a land that's not his own while these alienated, hostile-in-mind hyenas rule and reign in what was rightfully his kingdom. And they're doing evil deeds and they're corrupting the land. And creation is groaning for deliverance. It's groaning for the rightful king to return and restore the light of life. And then when he does return, all the wickedness is then undone. And then creation thrives as it was designed to. You guys are never going to watch The Lion King the same way again, are you? So Simba views the hyenas, the way that he views the hyenas in The Lion King, isn't too far off from the way Paul would have originally viewed the Colossians, especially growing up as an Israelite Pharisee. See, Colossians, the Colossians were beyond the borders of the people of God in the shadowy places of the Gentile land. Okay? This is part of the understanding, the way that they would have seen things. And so the king of the hyenas, Scar, was a corrupt, self-serving counterfeit of the true king. And so this is exactly how the Jews in the Old Testament would have perceived the godless nations surrounding them, including and especially the Roman Empire. They would have seen the Romans and Caesar, their emperor, like Scar and the hyenas invading their land. Right? And the Old Testament even refers to Gentiles as unclean dogs. And so the Jews were praying for God to send the Messiah, the true and good king, to come and crush the oppressive counterfeit and deal with the hostile hyenas and restore the land. But when the Messiah did come, he didn't just wipe out the bad guys like they wanted him to. He died for them. He died for the bad guys. What? He died for them to redeem them from the shadowy places in their own hearts and to reconcile themselves and invite them into the kingdom. Didn't see that coming. Should have. It was all over the Old Testament. But they didn't see that coming. See, if Jesus had come though to wipe out all the bad guys when he showed up, then there would be nobody left, but Jesus. Because as Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans in Romans 3:23, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Jew and Gentile, everybody, everybody. Alienation, hostility, bitterness inhabits the hearts of all humanity. Because while it's so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to trust, thus saith the Lord... The flip side to that is tis so bitter to distrust Jesus and reject his promise and deny his word. And when the human heart rejects the king, our natural inclination isn't repentance. It's pride and bitterness. It's alienation, hostility, and evil deeds, and zero desire to reconcile. That's why Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years before any of this in Isaiah 53, 6. All we, all we, Jew and Gentile, all of us, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all in looking forward to what Messiah would do. These are the alienated shadowy places of hostility that humanity has turned to. But the good news is we don't have to stay there. Which leads me to the second category. Reconciled to be presented holy. Look at verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He, Jesus. Jesus has now reconciled in his body. He's talking about you. He's reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. This is the gospel. That God became a man, and he lived the life we could not live, and he died the death that we deserved to die, and then he conquered death in the grave, and he paved the way to eternal life, and it's an eternal life that starts now. Not just one day when we die, but it starts now as we're indwelled with His Holy Spirit because the the chasm of distance between us has been bridged by His blood and His Spirit indwells and fills us and transforms us and changes us and reconciles us and then it begins to convict us and mature us and grow us and sanctify us in order to present us holy and blameless before Him as His beloved bride. Oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus. Oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus. Just to trust his cleansing blood. If he said it, if he said you're not guilty, quit holding on to your own guilt. Just trust in his cleansing blood and in simple faith to plunge me neath the healing, cleansing flood. Paul receives this revelation from Jesus, and he's been commissioned to take this to the Gentile world. He's been commissioned to go into the shadowy places beyond the borders and bring the light. It's not an off-limits. It's now the mission. So he's told to take the good news of the kingdom to the hyenas, in in a sense, right? Because it's for the hyenas, it's for the sick, it's for the alienated and hostile in mind. It's for those who are doing evil deeds. But now again, when we think about those who are alienated and hostile, it's easy to make your own assumptions about what that means, right? Like I think also, oftentimes when we hear this stuff, we, we, maybe you assume the Colossians were these dirty, uncivilized people, alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. Like they were these like just wicked people, Right? not modern and civilized like us today. Like their only thoughts are malicious or immoral. Like they're all sexual, deviant, depraved, and, and offering their children as sacrifices to demons and all kinds of stuff like that. And, and while in some ways that, that may have been true in, in for some, um, you need to realize that it wasn't any more true of them than it is of modern day America today. You need to understand that. In fact, if the average American today were to meet the average ancient Colossian and then hear Paul lump them into this category of alienated, hostile, and evil, the American would likely get offended and try to cancel Paul, just like the Romans did, who, by the way, cut his head off. Think about this. You may be shocked at just how much the average Colossian would have had in common with the average American. Like, these weren't necessarily uncivilized brutes. Like, this was a society that was built upon the philosophies of Aristotle and Socrates and Plato. Like, these philosophies had been around their culture for hundreds of years, even at this point in the first century. Modern-day Western society has actually been so heavily influenced and even shaped by the philosophies of this, these men that Aristotle, Plato, and Socrates, that the way that we think about justice and ethics and virtue and morality and economics and even politics, right? Even those things, many of the things that we consider, quote, good about people has been shaped by a worldview that would have been extremely prevalent in ancient Colossae. And yet, Paul says, outside of Christ... They're all alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds. He says they need reconciliation, which only comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In other words, it's not just the drug-addicted, abusive criminals who need Jesus. It's your sweet neighbors or that soccer mom who you would trust to take care of your children. I want you to hear that. It's not just the the, the people that you would deem worse than average society members that need Jesus. It's the high integrity person. Outside of Christ, they're alienated and they're hostile in mind. Like, that's what he's saying, guys. Look, if that soccer mom hasn't received Christ as her Lord and Savior, she's alienated. And she's hostile in mind towards God and all of her deeds are evil. What? Like that doesn't mean she's constantly doing immoral things or hurting people. You got to get this, okay? You need to understand this. It means that she's alienated and her heart is filled with shadowy places. It doesn't mean she acts like those hyenas all the time. In fact, she may have a better sense of morality than many Christians. But we're not saved by our morality. You need to get this. We're saved by grace in Christ. Faith alone in Christ alone. by grace alone. right? We're not saved by our morality. We're saved by grace. Being kind doesn't save you. Only Jesus does. Like people don't go to hell because of the way they vote. People don't go to hell because they're gay. People don't go to hell because they did that really bad thing 10 years ago, and now there's no hope for them. That's not why people are damned to hell. People are damned to hell because they haven't received Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's it. That's it. Whether they're living in depraved squalor or worldly morality, outside of Christ, it's all still the kingdom of darkness, and they're all in the tormented, shadowy places. This is the gospel. Like Too often we assume people are Christians just because they agree with us about the reason gas prices are so high. Right? It's like, yeah, they should have built that pipeline. Psh, that guy must love Jesus. What? Right? Like, listen to me. Even on the clear, like, actual biblical issues, it's great when unbelievers agree with Christian values, right? Like, being pro-life is beautiful, but that doesn't make you a Christian. Hear this. Conservative values don't save you. Jesus does. Only Jesus. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, those qualities, they don't save you. Jesus does. Only Jesus does. Those are the descriptions, though, of what he produces in you. That's why Paul calls those that the fruit of the Spirit in his letter to the Galatians. It's the fruit. Like, I know so many sweet, self-sacrificial people who are headed for a very real and very deserved, eternal damnation. And it's heartbreaking. I'm not saying this so you'll look down on them or think of yourself as better than them. It's the opposite. I'm not telling you to think less of others because of this. The point here is that you are them, but for the grace of God. I am them, but for the grace of God. And so we've been called to consider those around us, pray for them, and introduce them to Jesus and his people to engage and embrace them into gospel community and then equip and empower them to do likewise. This is not a morality factor or a morality factory, I should say, right? In some ways, yes, of course, I hope you get this, is that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, and that without those things, if those things are not growing in your life, then you're probably not actually in Christ, and that's a real thing, okay? But just because someone is not perfected in all of that stuff doesn't mean they're not in or, if someone has as many of those qualities, that also does not mean that they necessarily are in Christ. Because it's not about that. You've got to understand this. This isn't a popular message, right? Like, this is not, a, especially in a pluralistic world, where the highest value is tolerance. And you get canceled for saying anything that might be offensive. This is why this gets so confused in this society, because people don't want to go there. But as we're going to learn in this series, this is exactly the kind of society that the Colossians lived in as well. So again, verse 21, and you, you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now, say now, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So the Bible often uses this kind of contrast to emphasize the new life that's available in Christ. Romans 8, verse 7 through 9, in in his letter to the Christians in Rome, uh, Paul put it like this. He said, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if there's a condition in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. So, those in the flesh are those outside of Christ, alienated and hostile. But now, you, Roman Christians, are in the Spirit. You, Colossian Christians, have now been reconciled. You, Virginia Beach Christians, have now received Him by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So, Paul writes then to the church in Ephesus, saying this in Ephesians 2, verse 12 through 13. He said, remember that you were at that time, then separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, which are God's people, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now, say but now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Borderlines gone. You were once dead in your willful and active rebellion, completely helpless in your depravity. But now, because God acted, your alienation has been transformed into reconciliation. I'm not talking about even in your life what happened ten years ago. Maybe you were once hostile. Maybe you were hostile ten minutes ago. But now, but now, he's available. He's present. His grace is sufficient. This is amazing grace, right? I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see, right? But why? Why? Like, what's the purpose of our reconciliation? I want you to get this think about this why would God desire to reconcile you to himself oh, is so good well hear this we live in such a shame based culture that's so fixated on our own pride achieving our salvation and, and and abilities to be good enough that we're all we're either proud of ourselves or ashamed of ourselves either way we're just so focused on ourselves that we can't get these principles to lean in okay think about this why would God desire to reconcile you to Himself? There's only one reason. He wants you. He wants you to be with Him. It's why He fearfully and wonderfully knit you together in your mother's womb in the first place. He desires you, and He delights in you. He delights. What? He desires, he you might be in here this morning wondering, like, how, how do you know that? Like, how do you know, he delights? you don't even know what I was doing last night. Right? Maybe you're like, this is for them, it's for everybody else, but it's not for me. Like, how do you know he, he desires me? Because you're here this morning. And that's how I know. Because you're in here this morning. It's not a coincidence. He wants to be with you. This is a huge principle. Most people completely overlook this. God has reconciled you to himself because he delights in you. He wants to be with you, which is why he's come to be with us. Like, you still don't believe me? Let's keep reading. So, he is now, say now, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order, okay? In order to. So, here comes the purpose of his work on the cross. Here comes. Big drum roll, right? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Guys, do not overlook this. God has saved you to present you to himself holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The word holy here is set apart, but it also kind of means pure. Pure. Like he's purifying you, he's reconciled you, and he's purifying you to present you before Christ as he intended you to be, as he even created you to be, your pure self. Follow this. Pure and holy and blameless, your true self, untainted by sin, and my God, does he delight in who you are. He delights in who he created you to be, not the way you feel like you should be. Not, well, this is just, I mean, God just made me like this. That's why I feel like this. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Trust in his promise. Trust in just thus saith the Lord, not thus saith what I think I should be or how I should live or blah, 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 blah. You will be filled with anxiety. You will be filled with insecurity. And you will be filled with bitterness if you lean into that pill. It's destructive. And I'm not angry about it. I'm only angry about it in the sense of, like, it's hurting people. It's killing people, and it's separating people from God. So yeah, in some sense, yeah, I guess I am angry about it, right? And so there, there's this sense here, though, that this, what he's doing is that he sees you. He delights in you, the true you. He sees through all the effects of sin and he delights in you in a way that I think we can only catch glimpses of with, with those that we love the most, like our children and spouses. Like this is what he sees. In fact, the image here is a lot uh, uh, or, or is of a bride being presented to the groom on their wedding day. Think about this this image is all over the Bible. And it's a meta-narrative that we're walking out every day. Follow this. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Paul writes this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, making her holy. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Down in verse 32, he, he then says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. So he's saying that there's this powerful meta-narrative, this mystery, this, this thing that's being articulated in all of society about the church and and Christ and the relationship there. And it speaks to the redemptive narrative, the gospel itself. Revelation 19, verse 7 through 9, unveils even what the kingdom of heaven will be like on the earth, and it uses the language of a wedding ceremony. Look at Revelation 19, verse 7. It says this, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now how did, she, how did she make herself ready? What does this look like? What does a bride do when she's getting ready? She gets all pretty, right? She gets adorned, right? And it was, verse eight, it was granted her. It's almost like she's been given this amazing dress. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So this is a picture of the church being presented like a bride to Jesus. This is what we get. Isaiah sixty-two five even says, this is... Old Testament. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Do you feel like God rejoices over you? Do you sense that he delights in you? I pray that this becomes your motivation in life. This is, guys, if you miss this, you're going to live, you're going to be fighting bitterness and anxiety a lot. But there's a rest and there's a peace here. I prom, look at this. The highlight of any wedding is when the bride appears, right? Like when, when you go to a wedding ceremony, the music starts and everybody stands in this anticipation. And then the bride appears. Like I remember my wedding day, and I'm going to make my wife feel awkward right now, but it's all right. Um, but I remember when, when she appeared and she was escorted down the covenantal aisle by her father. I remember everybody stood and she, whoo, she was stunning. Like, I knew, I'm like, I know I'm marrying a beautiful woman. I knew it. I knew why I did it, right? And I knew how she, beautiful, but I wasn't ready. I wasn't prepared. It was, she, I was mesmerized. I was just stunned. I, I even remember hearing an audible gasp from the congregation because she was so striking, right? But the moment they saw her, It's like their joy wouldn't be complete until they turned their attention to me, the groom. Because they wanted to see the look on my face as I saw my bride and how much I delighted in her. And they'd look at me and they'd look back at her and then they'd look at me again and they'd look at her and then as her father escorts her down the covenant aisle to faithfully present her to her groom, Guys, look, the church, the world is watching you. You need to see, you need to know that the world is watching you. Don't do the whole, I don't care what they think. You better, because it's your witness, it's your testimony. But you're not saying, look how awesome I am. You're saying, look at how he delights me that's what the world does you, they look at you and they go oh my gosh beautiful how did she get so beautiful how did this happen and then you look and there, there it is God is escorting you down the covenant aisle of this life to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Christ now when Hannah's father presented her to me what if I was like you know what change my mind like, I, I know I promised, I know I said I love you and all that stuff, but, you know, things change, right? People fall out of love, right? Besides, bridesmaids of yours, hello. Right? Some of you feel real awkward right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Furthest thing from my mind. Why? Because I was captivated was completely captivated. It seems ridiculous, but how often is that exactly what happens? Unfortunately, maybe not on their wedding day, sometimes maybe. But way too often, the fallen shadows of our true Savior disillusion us in this world. And they preach a false gospel through adultery and unfaithfulness and all of these other things. But hear me, the good news is that he is unchanging. Those are just types and fallen shadows of what is true. I'm not Jesus. I hope you know that. She knows. <laughs> right? It's a type and a shadow. And when those things disillusion us they were only meant to and designed to point us to him in the first place. Right? But when they do, it preaches a false gospel to the world. But again, the good news is that he is unchanging, he is faithful, and he is trustworthy. And none of that is contingent upon anything or anyone but Jesus, for he alone is good. Now maybe your issue isn't that he's going to bail on you or change. Maybe your issue is that you're afraid you are going to. Maybe, maybe you're concerned that after all, you know, your hearts, our hearts are wayward. What if, what if you don't have what it takes to get down the aisle? Like, maybe you know he's trustworthy to be there when you get there, but what about you? What if you aren't trustworthy to make it? Good question. Are you strong enough and faithful enough to get down the aisle of this life without running to lesser saviors and counterfeit hopes? The short answer no, you're not. You're not. That's why you need an escort. The Father is faithful to get you there if you trust him right that may not be what you're expecting that you don't have what it takes but if you've been in this church long enough then it might exactly be what you were expecting right because if you're looking for a church to puff you up and tell you how worthy and amazing and capable you are you're in the wrong place Like, we will tell you how worthy and amazing and capable he is, and we're going to remind you of how much he loves you and he delights in you and he'll never leave nor forsake you and how committed he is to seeing you faithfully to the end. Like, so that you can say, I'm so glad I learned to trust him, precious Jesus, Savior, friend, and I know that he is with me and he will be with me to the end. But the point isn't about trusting in yourself and relying upon yourself. It's about trusting in Jesus. It's all about trusting in him. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just from sin and self to cease, just from Jesus simply taking life and rest and joy and peace. Like, how much of our anxieties are simply the result of us trying to be God? Like, you are a pathetic God, but Jesus is really good at it. So the real question, though, is do you believe he loves you? If you don't believe he loves you, you'll never trust him. This walk of faith is not a walk of fear. God isn't pushing us from behind saying, you better get up that aisle and love Jesus or else. That's not what he's doing. Like It's not what life in Christ is all about. It's about delighting in him it's about locking eyes with his delight in you and that's what beckons you forward right it's about wanting to be with him where he is it's about delighting in his delight and desiring him to be pleased with you like not impressed by you like i think a lot of times we get upset because we're like we strive to be impressive instead of delighted in. There's a big difference between being impressive and pleasing, okay? Many people think that the pursuit of holiness is an attempt to be impressive. And I think for some, it may be, but that's not holiness. That's just ego. Like, that's not worship. It's worthless because it's self-centered, right? We pursue holiness. We adorn ourselves in righteousness for his name's sake, not our own. Like, the bride is adorned for the delight of the groom. Because when the bride is adorned in righteousness, the watching world turns their head to see the groom for themselves. Like, if Hannah had shown up in dirty sweatpants all stinking, right? Like, what would that say about how much she values me in our marriage? You loved that one, didn't you? (laughs) The same thing happens when we discard holiness, though. Like it's a value statement to the watching world and it preaches a false gospel. I believe Jesus would marry me in all my stinky sweatpants and all of it. Right? But he's provided a beautiful gown to adorn us with. So clothe yourself in that righteousness, in his righteousness. Right? Right? When we lock eyes with our King and we radiate with delight in His delight, the watching world sees what they too were created for. And so those are the two categories. How am I doing on time? Not too great. Those are the two categories. You were alienated and hostile, but now you've been reconciled to be presented holy, and that all sounds amazing because it is. But we're not done, because if you look at the next verse here, verse twenty-three, if indeed you continue in the faith say if now that's a big if because what's coming next is important because this is a conditional statement It all hinges on the one thing, one condition, one precious truth that triumphs in preeminence over all else, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the condition, that we continue in the faith and the hope of the gospel. You see, the gospel is the avenue through which his unconditional love is presented to you. The condition upon which his love is received through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. He is the condition. There is one way to the Father, and that is through the Son. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. But when this condition is presented to an alienated and self-consumed world, all they hear is pride again and or shame. That's why our society is so easily offended, because it's so insecure and because it's consumed with themselves. It's all about your ability or inability. It's all about what you can or cannot accomplish, which either leads to pride or shame. So you're good enough and and, and if you're good enough and, and you don't sin, then you've attained reconciliation. You've climbed the ladder to salvation. You've built your own Tower of Babel to God. But that's not salvation. You can't get there. And even if you were, it wouldn't be salvation. It would just be pride. Like, that's why our culture loves the, like, you can do it message, right? But that's not the gospel. You can't do it. You can't. That's insecure. It's anxious striving to be God enough. And you're not God enough. That attempt is what got us in this mess in the first place. No wonder our culture's so ridden with anxiety. So when people read this if statement, though, hear me, they immediately, and maybe you did too, assume it's all up to them to achieve salvation. If they don't, then they're going to be damned forever. But that's not at all what it says. This is not a passage encouraging you to climb the rungs of your own ego. So many people read it like that, which is why people use the scripture to say that you can lose your salvation, which is nonsense. It's nonsense. If you lose your salvation, it's because you never had it. Because the gospel is that it's not about what you can or cannot do. It's about what he's done for you. And so it's about trusting in him, resting in him, hiding yourself in him, trusting in him. It's so sweet to trust in jesus just from sin self to cease just from jesus simply taking life and rest and joy and peace this is reconciliation this is our hope our hope isn't in ourselves at all it's in jesus verse 23 look at it again if indeed if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This isn't a passage about potentially losing your salvation. It's literally saying that if you shift from that hope, you never had it to begin with. Your hope was in yourself and the things of this world, not the good news of Jesus. As the apostle John put it in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So again, Paul is inviting us to examine here where our hope is by the fruit of our lives. So we can experience the sweetness of fully trusting in Jesus. That's the point here. So the question is, that he's beckoning here is that is your hope in Christ? Is he the rock of your salvation, or are you where your hope lies? Do you deserve this salvation? No. Can you earn it? No. Then why do you have it? Because he loves you. That's it. That's it. I don't get it. I don't know why he loves you. (laughs) I'm not even sure why I love you sometimes, but I do. Because I sense his love for you. Like this, I don't, I, don't, I don't get it. Why do we have it? Is it because he's impressed with you? No. Is it because he worships you? Absolutely not. But that doesn't mean he's not pleased with you. That doesn't mean he doesn't delight in you. That doesn't mean that he's not absolutely just, you, he cherishes you like a sweet aroma. Psalm 19, verse 12 through 14, and I'm wrapping it up here. It says this, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Years ago, Shane Bernard wrote a song about this. And this is the lyrics. I love it. You're my rock and my redeemer. You're the reason that I sing. I desire to be a blessing in your eyes. Every hour and every moment, Lord, I want to be your servant. I desire to be a blessing in your eyes. Because he's amazing, that's why. Because he's amazing, not so you can be amazing. It's because he's worthy of worship, not because you're worthy of worship. And yet, like, what if people, if, if Hannah, when people looked at her, and they were like, wow, and then they looked at me, and Hannah was like, no, 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 eyes on me. This is my time. No. Right? It's about the Lord, right? And I'm, I'm saying I'm not God. You, you get the idea. But this is, the, this is what he's saying. You're, he, he, it's because he's worthy of worship, not because you're worthy of worship. And yet, but now, because of the cross, you've been made worthy to offer worship that's acceptable and even pleasing to him. That means you've been made clean. That means you are delightful. That means he dotes on you. His face shines upon you. That means that this is what motivates and calls to the hearts of his beloved. So fix your eyes, fix your gaze upon him, and allow the Lord himself to escort you down the covenant aisle of this life to present you holy and blameless before him. You were made by him and you were made for him, and you were literally designed for this. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh for grace to trust him more. Let's pray.